Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about a saint who was elected Pope in 1963 and wrote seven encyclicals, including Humanae Vitae. Hear more about St. Paul VI this week, including Bishop's memories of him. Then it's on to this Sunday's Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. Bishop reflects upon this central mystery of our faith and then that day's gospel reading from Matthew, which includes Jesus's great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The show wraps up with listeners submitted questions on a recent Vatican conference, whether Mary felt pain during childbirth, and who decides when popes retire. If you have a question for a future episode, submit it at redeemerradio.com askbishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thanks for joining us again, Bishop. Good to see you, Kyle. Thanks. Yeah. Did so, you have a good Pentecost? Delightful. Yeah, good. it was very Pentecostal-ish. Did you um, <laughs> did you celebrate as a family? Yeah, I, I mean, we didn't have a, a Pentecost cake or anything. Why not? <laughs> Maybe next year. Yeah. <laughs> Is that something that they have in the catalogs? Of, uh, well, I would just get a cake and have... Red icing and okay. maybe put have the have the uh, seven gifts of the Holy Spirit put on it. That would be a good idea for a family to do. Lots of candles. Yes, right? lots of candles. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> All of the candles. <laughs> well, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is Saint Paul the Sixth, Pope Paul the Sixth. Is there anything that stands out to you that you remember of his pontificate? Like when he was alive? And, oh, yeah, I do. Because, I mean, I was in college when he died. Mm-hmm. So he was the pope, the first pope I really remembered. I, I think he was elected. Of course, he was elected after the first session of Second Vatican Council. And I was probably like six mm-hmm. years old when he was elected. But he was the pope until I was, I think, 21. And you went to Rome? Yeah, I went a, to Rome in 79. So, oh, just missed him. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, I never met him or never saw him in person. What I kind of, when I think of Pope Paul VI, I think of his suffering. Hmm. That's my main image because it was a really difficult time in the church, the 1970s. And I can remember like he just seemed like he was carrying the cross. Uh, That's my image of him. Because of debates over Vatican II kind of stuff? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And, and things that were happening in the church and in the world mm-hmm. um, that it, it just seemed like he was he was really carrying the cross. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, before we get too far into this, do you have a, an opening prayer for us? Well, you know, this Sunday is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, a, mm-hmm. a very beautiful feast. The Sunday after Pentecost, we always celebrate the Holy Trinity, which, of course, is the central mystery of our faith and of our life. So I thought I would begin with the, the prayer, the collect for uh, Sunday for this solemnity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, who by sending into the world the word of truth and the spirit of sanctification, made known to the human race your wondrous mystery, grant us, we pray, that in professing the true faith, we may acknowledge the trinity of eternal glory and adore your unity, power,
powerful in majesty. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I do want to talk about the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, which is coming up this Sunday. But before we do, this coming Saturday will be the feast day of St. Pope Paul VI. And I can't believe it. I don't think we've really talked about him. We might have talked about Humana Vitae a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know that we've talked about his life and his pontificate. Yeah. um, Be happy to. Because I think, you know, maybe some of the the listeners um, know some things about him. Um, Obviously, I think he's most well-known because of the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Pope John XXIII, St. John XXIII, died after the first session. So it was Pope Paul VI who who was there for the, the, the other three sessions, the final three sessions of the council. And then, of course, the implementation, those initial years more than a decade after the council ended. He was pope during all those years for the implementation of the council's teachings. But anyhow, looking back further in his life, he was born in 1897 in Brescia, area of northern Italy, and ordained a priest in 1920. And he was a very bright student, studied philosophy and law, civil law and canon law. but as a youth, he was he was pretty. Um, he he wasn't in very good health. As a matter of fact, I think, I think some of his as a child, I think he was homeschooled some of the time because of his health problems. And um, even when he was in the seminary, I think he had very frail health. Hmm. In any event, um, shortly after he was ordained, he was appointed as a attaché kind of a, an assistant in the apostolic nunciature in Warsaw. But that was only maybe about a year. And then he returned to Italy and began serving in the Secretariat of State of the Vatican. So, I mean, just two years after ordination, I mean, most priests, you go to a parish or whatever. Yeah. He, he was like right away put into this work in, in Vatican diplomacy, etc. You know, so he was serving the Holy See under the pontificates of both Pope Pius the Eleventh and Pope Pius the Twelfth, and just think about what was happening at that time. You know, I mean, Hitler was on the rise, and etc. Hmm. He also was a teacher at the Lateran University on papal diplomacy. In 1937, Pope Pius XI appointed him substitute of the Secretary of State. That means a pretty high position in the Vatican Secretariat of State. World War II broke out. He was engaged in helping refugees. He helped Jews. He oversaw the Vatican Information Office at that time. And he was really a close collaborator then of Pope Pius XII. When you read his biography, he was quite instrumental in the efforts of the church to save uh, Roman Jews during the Nazi persecution when it had reached the city of Rome. I think it was in early in the 1950s, he was appointed Archbishop of Milan. And Milan was the biggest diocese in Italy. And uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world, I'm not sure. But he was a great archbishop. He he had 
new methods of evangelization. He he was concerned about Marxist ideology, and he was concerned about materialism, and and he had to deal with a lot of immigration issues. So he was a very uh, excellent archbishop. And uh, I think he was archbishop there maybe about nine years before he was elected pope. Okay. So he was at the... Uh, the first session of the Second Vatican Council as an archbishop. And when Pope John the Twenty Third died, Paul the Sixth, by the way, his name was Giovanni Montini. I should have said that. Giovanni Montini. So Papa uh-huh. Montini. And he took the name Paul the Sixth, which is a significant name because of course Saint Paul was was a great missionary. So mm-hmm. you can kind of see he had this commitment to evangelization. So he brought the the, the, the third, the three uh, final periods of the council to conclusion. It was kind of a balancing thing. One of the things about the council was encouraging the church to be engaged with the modern world. Okay. That was really important. But also at the same time, respecting the church's tradition. So after the council, um, you know, there were a lot of changes that took place. There were... A, um, there was a lot of excitement. At the same time, there were problems. There were those who went beyond what the council intended, and so we had to try to rein in the progressive element that was kind of maybe that were going too far. Mm-hmm. And then there was the ultra-conservative element, and there was even a, a somewhat of a schism with Archbishop Lefebvre, those who were against the teaching, some of the teachings of the council. So it was a tough thing. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual after a council to have something like that happen. So we had to deal with this, trying to maintain the unity of the church. But even culturally, it was a challenging time. He also was committed to the... the various teachings of the council like uh, ecumenism and he's the pope who really started to started the practice of making apostolic journeys to different countries Hmm. and one uh, he began with the holy land that's significant and there was a historic meeting that took place with the head of the of the orthodox church patriarch athenagoras and there was a mutual lifting of the excommunications hmm. where the Catholic Church had excommunicated the Orthodox and the Orthodox had excommunicated Catholics. So, so that was very significant. But you see this missionary impulse that he was the first pope to travel outside Italy. As I said, he went to the Holy Land. He went to, came to the United States. Now, it was kind of brief. He spoke at the United Nations and celebrated Mass at Yankee Stadium. He traveled to India. He traveled to the Philippines, where there was an assassination attempt, by the way, in 1970. And then he also wrote encyclicals, important encyclicals, um, including some social encyclicals like Populorum Progressio uh, on the development of peoples that has had a great significant impact on development, especially regarding the the poor in the world. And he was a great teacher. And... um, he instituted the World Day of Peace that we're kind of used to now on January 1st. Of course, the famous encyclical Humanae Vitae, which he um, 
maintained the church's position against artificial contraception, and he got very much criticized mm -hmm. by the left for that 1968 encyclical. And he, I mean, there was a lot of dissent and open opposition to him, and I think that caused him a lot of pain and suffering. Another thing that happened, uh, one of his closest friends throughout his life was Aldo Moro. Aldo Moro was, uh, had been pr the premier, the uh, prime minister of, of Italy. And in the spring of 1978, and I remember this because it was just the year before I went to Rome as a student, he was kidnapped by the Red Brigade. That's a, a terrorist group in Italy. And this broke Pope Paul VI's heart. I mean, this was a close friend, and he appealed for his release. And a heartfelt letter to the kidnappers. And then not long after that, the body of Alto Moro was found, you know, with many bullets he had been, he was found in downtown Rome in the back of a car. And uh, that was heartbreaking for Pope Paul VI, that even though he appealed for his friend's life, it was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. So so that's why I said, you know, I think of him carrying the cross. I mean, there's a lot more we can, um, can say about Pope Paul. Benedict XVI, in 2012, declared that he had lived a life of heroic virtue. And then two years later, in 2014, Pope Francis beatified him and then later canonized him. That's, I guess, just kind of a summary of the life of, of Pope Paul VI. Yeah, I, there's a lot that I hadn't heard of before. And I mean, I think we talk about Humana Vitae every once in a while, but... Uh, he wrote seven encyclicals. So you mentioned... Popolorum Progressio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, There's another one, and I don't remember if it was an encyclical or, or an apostolic exhortation where he talked about how necessary it is that we be involved in issues of justice and peace. And it's called Octogesima Adveniens. And that was a very strong apostolic letter. It was on the 80th anniversary of Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum. Hmm. Uh, so that's so he did contribute to the church, the uh, the church's social teaching. Ecclesiam Suum, if I recall, was his first um, encyclical. And then there's the Credo of the People of God. Because of the confusion after the Council, he issued this document called the Credo the creed of the people of God, which kind of emphasized the essential teachings of our faith. He also resisted attempts to make priestly celibacy optional, and hmm. he wrote an important document on priestly celibacy. Again, I can't remember which were encyclicals and which were right. other documents, but, but there was a lot of good teaching, the teaching magisterium of Paul VI. A lot of that probably came out before you were in seminary. Is that something that you studied in seminary then? Yes. I remember uh, the document on celibacy we had to read. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, when I taught that course at Mount St. Mary's, that was required reading for all the seminarians. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Miriam found some quotes from him that I hadn't heard before. He said, if you want peace, work for justice. I feel like I've, I've heard that quote Very before. Very popular. I didn't A lot of people him. don't know that that comes yeah. from Paul VI. And then... Technological society has succeeded in multiplying the opportunities for pleasure, but it has great difficulty in generating joy. I thought right. it was pretty profound. Yeah. yeah. I haven't heard that quote. Yeah. That is really good. And that gets into the difference between pleasure and joy, I suppose. Yeah. But 
maybe share some more more quotes I've, I've only got one more the older the fiddler the sweeter the tune oh i never heard that one either <laughs> okay. i wonder how old he was whenever he said that <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you also mentioned coming up this Sunday is the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. So, obviously, Trinity is very important. This is three persons and one God. What else are we celebrating, highlighting with Trinity Sunday? Well, I know we've talked on the program. We've talked Trinitarian theology at different times. Uh, I'm thinking, why not just look at the gospel Mm -hmm. this Sunday? Okay. you know, this is year B, so the gospel is one that we've heard many times. It's the gospel of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And even though we've heard this many times, I think it's always good to refresh ourselves. So here it is. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they all saw him, they worshiped, but they doubted. Then Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age." It's interesting how the doctrine, the church's doctrine of the Trinity really became clearly articulated by the church in the 4th and 5th centuries. Hmm. But we see the seeds of this teaching in this command of Jesus and in many other parts of the, of the New Testament and even some parts of the Old Testament. But, but here we have a very important and very explicit instruction from Jesus to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting that we see we can I, I, those who heard or that the early Christians would have been aware of of Jesus's baptism, you know, and and see this command in light of Jesus's baptism because there we have a revelation of the trinity as well. Mm-hmm. Jesus the son, you know, but the father's voice being heard from heaven and then the holy spirit descending as a dove. So this re- relationship between baptism and the three persons of the holy trinity doesn't just come out of the blue. We see it at Jesus's own baptism earlier in the gospel. When we think about this gospel, notice that it doesn't say that we're baptized in the names of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. It's singular because there's only one God. And I think sometimes we, you know, you can kind of miss that. It's in the name, not the names. Right. You know, so this is another proof, so to speak, of, of the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we're baptized, of course, we're baptized, as Jesus commanded, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But even before a person's baptized, the person or the parents, in the case of an infant, are asked uh, that three-part question, do you believe in God the Father, 
creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? So this three-part mm. question. So there's this profession of belief in the Trinity prior to baptism. So our faith rests on the Trinity. As I said, this is the central mystery of our faith. It's because it's the mystery of God in himself. You know, thinking about Trinity Sunday coming up, I also think it's interesting to to reflect on our baptism and the Holy Trinity because what happens, what are the effects of baptism? Of course, we know baptism purifies from all sins. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to realize that we become new creatures. In other words, we become adopted children of God, Mm -hmm. adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. We become members of Christ, co-heirs with Christ the Son, and we become temples of the Holy Spirit. What baptism is all about is Mm -hmm. our insertion into the life of God. You know, we become adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. We become brothers and sisters of Jesus, members of Christ and his body, the church, co-heirs with Christ, and we become temples of the Holy Spirit. So this uh, relationship with, with the most holy trinity and the whole organism of our, our supernatural life has its roots here in baptism when we become new creatures. So why is confirmation separated from baptism? If we become temples of the Holy Spirit at baptism, why not just fill that temple with the Holy Spirit at the same time? Well, you know, in the Eastern churches, it is done at the same time. Okay. Yeah, they, they confirm infants. Hmm. Um, in, the, in the Latin church, the Western church, there's been a different evolution, and you can be confirmed at the age of reason. Okay. Okay, so, and there's a lot of debate uh-huh. about, you know, the order of the sacraments of especially between the Eucharist and confirmation, because actually the climax of our, uh, of our initiation of the church is, is, is the Holy Eucharist. Mm-hmm. But I would say regarding the effects of confirmation in relation to the effects of, of baptism, I'm glad you asked that question. What happens when we are confirmed is we're more firmly united to Christ. In other words, there's an increase of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in us, mm-hmm. we've already received them at baptism. Okay, There's an increase. And we're more deeply rooted in our identity as adopted sons and daughters of God. So it's, it's really a confirming of what happened at baptism. It's a, a, um, it's a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit like happened to the apostles at Pentecost. So the end or the purpose is that, and I've talked about this before, we're strengthened for mission, mm-hmm. like happened to the apostles. Uh, so we're strengthened by the Holy Spirit. This is a special grace to spread and defend the faith by being true witnesses of Christ in our words and in our deeds. So it is like baptism, but it we can say it completes baptism. Mm-hmm. So it could be done, but not in the Western church. You have to have the age of discretion, the age of reason to receive it. But there's nothing theologically problematic about being confirmed as an infant after baptism like the Eastern Church does. So in theory, that could change. It could change, yeah. Okay. Not likely to happen anytime soon. (laughs) Right. Because, I mean, 
there's been centuries of development uh -huh. as far as the liturgical celebration. It'd be interesting. I can't remember if um, in the Western church, if in the early centuries was con confirmation done at the same time as baptism. I think so, but I don't want to say that with absolute s certainty, mm -hmm. but definitely with time. Part of the reason is this. I do remember this. In the early church, it was the bishop who did baptism right. Right. and then confirmed. Well, gradually as the church grew, it wasn't possible for the bishop to do all the baptisms. So, mm -hmm. But they kept the confirmation for the bishop to do. Right. And therefore, there was this separation that took place. Yeah, but exactly what century all that happened, I'd have to do some research on that. I don't remember. So in the Orthodox Church, do the priests perform the confirmation? Correct. Okay. And if a pre in the Western Church, let's say an adult, like for the RCIA, an adult uh, catechumen being prepared for baptism, at the Easter Vigil, the priest can confirm them as well. As a matter of fact, has to confirm those he baptizes. Uh -huh. So even in the Western Church, in the Latin Church, the priest confirms adults when he baptizes them. But he is not allowed to confirm a Catholic, someone who's already Catholic, once they have been baptized. Mm -hmm. He cannot confirm them. That's reserved to the bishop unless the bishop gives him the faculty to do so. Okay. Which I rarely, I do sometimes, but there really has to be a good reason because the bishop is the ordinary minister of mm -hmm. confirmation. So I take that, that responsibility pretty seriously. I don't delegate that faculty very often. For example, on uh, every year I have confirmation of adults right. at each cathedral. And that's because I feel it's important that the bishop be the one confirming if possible. There are specific situations where, for one particular reason or other, a, bishop, a priest might ask me for the faculty to confirm an adult. And if the reason is just, I'll give the faculty. And is it okay for a Latin Rite Catholic, a Roman Catholic, somebody in this diocese, to be or to have a child baptized in an Orthodox church? In which well, case no, they no. Because okay. they're not in union with Rome. Okay. Yeah. When I'm speaking of the Eastern Church, I'm I'm referring to the Eastern Catholic Church. Okay. Eastern Catholic churches. Remember we talked about right, 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 right. Yeah. So the Eastern Catholic churches do the baptism and confirmation at Yes, they okay. do it together also. And so would that be valid and okay for a Catholic to participate in? You mean as far as have their own child? No, because you have to follow the law of the of the Latin Church. Okay. Not and an Eastern Catholic has to follow the law of the Eastern Catholic Church. There's two different codes of canon law. Okay. For Eastern Catholics and for Latin Catholics. But they're still in union with Rome. Correct. And with the Pope. And the Pope promulgated both codes. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about Mary feeling pain during childbirth. Why do we use wine and water at Mass? And more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. 
In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I will be asking questions that listeners submitted so that Bishop can enlighten us. Our first question comes from Steve Moran from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne. It says, can you please comment on the bizarre gathering at the Vatican? I think this is a, there's an event May 6th through 8th called Exploring the Mind, Body, and Soul that he's referring to. To be honest, I didn't follow that. I've been pretty busy. I've been on the confirmation circuit and graduations. But um, I know it was a conference that was sponsored by the Vatican Council or the Pontifical Council for Culture. And this Pontifical Council, this Department of the Vatican, has had some of these conferences on various topics to bring together people around the world on various topics. And the one on exploring the mind, body, and soul brought together doctors and scientists and religious leaders and philanthropists to talk about latest breakthroughs in medicine, healthcare, delivery, and prevention. I think probably because of the COVID pandemic, they had that topic, I'm not quite sure. But basically when the Vatican has conferences like this, and you know, the Pontifical Council for Culture, they try to bring people of different opinions together on certain issues and topics so that they can talk and confront each other. So they don't just invite people who agree fully with the teachings of the church. So they're trying to get people who think differently. I think even they've even had atheists at some of these conferences. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is to start a dialogue, to build a relationship with even with people that that we would disagree with. And it can be kind of challenging, I, I would think, to do something like this. I mean, sometimes some of these people have ideas that are very different and against some of our teachings. And I guess this this uh, conference, as I said, I wasn't really able to follow it, but it was designed to look at the human being and his totality about the body, mind, and soul. And obviously, we have very clear Catholic teaching on this topic, especially the topic of, of, um, of the uh, body and soul. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of our whole Christian anthropology. But... Um, so I know that there was some upsetment on some because of some of the speakers who were invited, who are people who you know really are not what we would call friends of the church in the sense that they they oppose uh, certain church teachings. I think the purpose is is to just get have dialogue with people, even those who disagree with us. So speakers at the conference shouldn't be seen as being endorsed by oh, no. the church no. at all. All right. Our next listener said, it's often said that Mary didn't feel pain during childbirth because she was sinless and pain is a result of sin. But Jesus, who is also sinless, felt the pain of his crucifixion. Can you explain? Right. Uh, It's an interesting question. Um, You see, part of it is it it goes back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse uh, 16, where, where God said to the woman, to Eve, 
I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So this was a result of original sin. Mm -hmm. And many fathers of the church and theologians through the centuries said it was very fitting that Mary should be exempt from such pains because of her unique holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's been kind of like the common teaching that Mary was free of pain in childbirth, but it's never been definitive teaching. Okay. okay. So it hasn't been taught with that degree of authority that it would be something infallible, like, like the Immaculate Conception, that's infallible teaching. Mm-hmm. Many fathers of the church, they, they had the opinion that Mary would not have undergone pain at childbirth. So generally the understanding of, of, of the church, I think would be that, uh, that it was befitting that the new Eve, that Mary would not experience the pain, that she is the new Eve. And it seems right that uh, that she would have given birth without pain. And you see some popes who've, who've written about this too. Um, even in the Eastern liturgy, Eastern Catholic liturgy, there's a reference to this in one of their songs. So it's an interesting topic, but again, it's not definitive. Okay, it's not that infallible. Okay. Okay. And I guess comparing the situation with Jesus, oh. who did experience pain, was right, that, but I, yeah. would he have experienced pain his entire life, or was that something he just kind of opted into as part of this sacrificial thing at the end of his life? That's an interesting question. I mean, we do know Jesus certainly underwent pain. What, what the question specifically about the pain of delivery okay. in re- uh, at birth, which mm-hmm. is linked to these words of God to right. Eve. Right. So, yeah. So do we say maybe we can't say definitively that she didn't, but she may not have experienced pain? Right. Maybe. Right. <laughs> okay. And I'd say the tradition is stronger that she did not experience pain. Okay. When you look at, uh, yeah especially the writings of the fathers of the church. All right. Good. Uh, a lot of questions that I haven't thought about before, like this one. Why do priests, bishops, cardinals retire on a regular basis, but it's rare for the Pope to retire? Well, you know, the bishops have to submit their letter of retirement at age 75. Mm-hmm. As far as priests, it depends on the diocese. In our diocese, a priest is required to submit his uh, letter resignation at the age of seventy-five. Okay, cardinals, uh, I think also, but they and then they lose the right to vote in a conclave when they turn eighty. Mm-hmm. But for the pope, the pope, ha- there is no age for retirement, and I think uh, why it is rare. I mean, the first pope to retire in many centuries was Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. A uh, pope is always free to retire, but he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Most reign as pope until their death mm-hmm. because and, and i guess the question is why well he's the supreme legislator for the church's laws and i think the fact that traditionally this has been the the practice that that uh, or the tradition that popes have have uh, served until death but they are free to retire but no one can tell the pope there's no higher authority uh-huh. on earth to legislate an age for a pope to retire. Okay. I mean, who's going to 
say that he has to. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. Who who accepts his letter? Right, right. <laughs> retirement, I guess. Uh, because the letters that are submitted by bishops or by priests uh, don't have to be accepted. Right. Is that right? That's correct. So I will have, when I turn 75, I'll have to write to the Pope. It's up to him whether to accept it. Mm-hmm. Same with a pastor who writes to me, which they have to, uh-huh. submitting their their uh, resignation as pastor and their retirement, I don't have to accept it. Now, if they want to retire, they're 75 years old, I'll never tell them they have to stay in. Yeah. Now, I might need them to, though, and uh-huh. I might ask them, Could you? would you stay on another year mm-hmm. or something like that? I, I can do that, but I've never been in a position where I've made a priest continue to work after 75. Do priests ever... I don't know how you would do it, but like reluctantly retire. Oh yeah. Like say, um, I am submitting my letter of retirement, but am happy to continue my services. Yeah. Or something like yeah. that. And and yeah, and that, that, you, you hint towards like I don't I don't need to retire. Yeah. I'm happy continuing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, what I have to do when I if a priest wants to continue, I, it might be a really good benefit, you know, and I'll be happy and for their generosity to uh-huh. do that, and I'll I'll gladly let them stay on. But there can be a situation where it may not be good, and I'll insist I will accept it even if they want to continue on because I have to look at the good of the parish too. And the good of the priest and his own health, but right. also the health of the parish. Right. And, you know, it might be better that, and I say, no, I really want you to retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even in retirement, a lot of the priests continue doing some sort of ministry. Yeah. Our priests have been very yeah. generous that way. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great help so that, let's say, priest, um, you know, gets sick and mm-hmm. we need someone to help out. One of our retired priests often will step forward, or, or a priest who who needs to get away, go for a vacation, needs, right. is looking for someone to cover the parish while he's on vacation. Uh, our retired priests have been invaluable in in offering that kind of assistance. Mm-hmm. All right, Aidan Schmitz from Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne, which, by the way, this is Miriam's nine year old son. He asked, why do they bring both water and wine to the altar during Mass and not just wine? Aiden, that's a good question. I'm glad you gave us that. You know, this idea of pouring just a little bit of wine or a little bit of water into the wine goes back to uh, really the beginning. And it was very common practice among the Jews and in that area of the world, the Mediterranean, when they would drink wine, they would often put some water in it. Okay. So that was kind of found also in the liturgy of the church from the beginning. We see it mentioned in some early documents, like in the second century. There's a famous writing by St. Justin Martyr, and then also by St. Cyprian, where they talk about how some water was put into the wine at the consecration or before the consecration of the Mass. And you might say, well, you know, why is that? There's some symbolic reason for it. And basically is the people are signified by the water, but Christ's blood by the wine. Hmm. So when water is mixed with the wine in the chalice, it's like the people are made one with Jesus. Hmm. Okay, so that's... um, And what does the priest say when he does puts the little bit of water in with the wine. He says, he doesn't say it out loud. He says it very softly, Mm -hmm. quietly. 
by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So this idea of sharing in the divinity of Christ, people being made one with Christ. So that's the idea of the people being signified by the water and Christ's blood by the wine. And I love that line too. I kind of wish it was said out loud so we yeah. kind of be reminded of that every mass. But why then is it brought up with the wine and the bread and not just at the altar ready to go? Because we talk about bringing up the, oh. the wine and bread for, for our offering or whatever. And normally they don't bring the water up. They just oh, okay. they usually bring that up for over from the Cretans. I mean, I guess they can't they can bring it up. I mean, I've been at masses where water's never brought up, and other times okay. where they bring up the water. Okay. I don't know. I'd have to look exactly why. I think the 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 wine and the bread should be brought up. I I, I um or the host, but I'm thinking water maybe, but it doesn't have to be. And I guess I don't know if I've been really paying attention if that changed with COVID of bringing. Well, we haven't had offertory processions because of. I think now I think we're allowing it now, but um, I know before because of limiting the physical right uh, right contact. Yeah. All right. Finally, someone asked, "Do you ever wear vestments from the local parish or school, or do you always bring your own?" I do both. I think more often I bring my own because mm-hmm. oftentimes um, I'm not sure what kind of vestments they're going to have if there's and if the priests there are concelebrating, they're wearing the vestments. Right. So I'm not sure they have enough. But also I have some chasubles that match where the miter matches the chasuble. Okay. Yeah. So I but sometimes you know I don't because I'm on, in a hurry and I forget or whatever or. You know, so sometimes I'll use their, the vestments that they have at the parish, but I'd say more often I wear my own. And just to clarify, the miter being the hat that you have that Correct. matches the, the vestments. Yes. And do usually do those vestments belong to a parish or do they belong to the priest? And he, if he gets a new assignment, he travels with his vestments or? Both. Okay. Um, it's interesting. Uh if the vestments were purchased by the priest personally uh-huh. with his own money, he can take those with him. But if they are vestments that were purchased by the parish, then they stay in the parish. Okay. Or if they were gifted to the priest, right. they would belong to him. Right. Very interesting. So how many vestments? I have you? a lot. Yeah. I, I, um, I have too many, actually. <laughs> but I've been gifted a lot. Yeah. And I have given some away to the missions. Okay. Uh, like, you know, but um, so I have to do that again because I, I keep, and I don't want to like <laughs> re-gift, but that's always funny, re-gifting. But, you know, sometimes I get too much and I don't like to have a lot of possessions. But yeah. but I have, I definitely have more vestments than I need. Do you have any special ones that, like yeah. the person that gave it to you or the something about it that yeah. you really... The one that I was ordained a bishop in, I'll always keep that. Sure. And one was given to me when I was uh, in memory of my mother when she died in 1994. I'll always keep that. Okay. They'd be the two most yeah. special ones. How much typically are priest vestments? Like if you wanted de- to gift something to your oh, priest? It depends. I mean, if you look in a catalog, they can be anything from... A hundred dollars to well over a thousand dollars depends on the material, okay. depends on the 
amount of craftsmanship. There's a, a large price range. We get a lot of catalogs at the house, and I, I have yet to see vestments in our catalogs. Uh, well, there's yeah. certain vest, there's certain Catholic companies that. Have, oh, I'm you're teasing. <laughs> well, me. no, I didn't. Uh, I just no, if you get some Catholic catalogs, get... you should check. Yeah, you can get that have like statues and vestments, uh-huh. and but you would not typically have that kind of catalog coming to your house. Huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's not in the, the Walmart and the Target you know, <laughs> flyers that we get. Uh, All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can send a text to the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. There are almost 200 past episodes of Truth in Charity on topics ranging from church news to saints to sacraments. To access the entire archive, just do a search on your favorite podcast app, or more directly, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can listen anytime, and if you have a favorite episode, it's easy to share it with a friend. Download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and hit podcasts for the archive of all locally produced shows, including Truth and Charity, Church Life Today, and Dr. Doctor. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.